Hello, this is Chris O'Regan, and you're listening to The Sausage Factory. This is episode 303 of The Sausage Factory. Welcome! In this episode I chat to John Ingle of Ingle about their tactical adventure game Pendragon. Now, for very, very long time listeners, John's name may ring a bell because he appeared in the second episode of The Sausage Factory in November 2013. And here he is again, seven years later. Wow! seven years, seven years later, to uh, chat about Pendragon, which is a tactical adventure game, um, very, very story-driven and based very closely to the original Arthurian legends, which John and I do expand on about a little bit in this episode. So if you're into your, your you know, mythology and Celtic and Saxon mythology, then mixed together, uh, it's more Saxon, really, isn't it? Anyway, uh, Anglo-Saxon, I should say. Then you're going to have a whale of a time with this episode because we do we do expand a little bit on that because we both have a um, a passion about that particular period of history or mythology, I should say. So, without further ado, let's uh, listen to me and John from the past, about six, seven weeks ago now, to uh, chat about Pendragon and how Inkle made it. Chris, if you'd be so kind. John! Hi! Who are you and what do you do? I am called John Ingold. I'm a narrative designer and a writer. I'm the narrative director at Inkle, which is a little independent game studio that I co-founded with a friend of mine horrifically long ago, (laughs) about 10 years ago. Um, I think these days I call myself a writer, which is not... It's not reasonable because I spend a lot of time programming computers, which is not what writers are supposed to do. But I always wanted to be a writer, so I started calling myself a writer. Hi, I'm John, and I'm a writer. It's like Alcoholics Anonymous, but for writers. Yeah, yeah. Mm. But we'll, we'll talk about that in a minute. But if uh, regular, <laughs> regular <laughs> listeners will know, really long time, really, really long time listeners will know, they might recognise John's voice. That's because you've probably been listening since December 2013 when John was on episode two of The Sausage Factory. Now, granted, this is episode 303. 
<laughs> so some time has passed since then. Yeah, it's, it's very nice of you to finally have me back. Oh, no. I, I, we asked, we wrote. Yeah, there was <laughs> pleads. pleaded. <laughs> so because of that, we're not going to ask the next two questions because John's already answered. If you want to know the answer to, you know, how did he might start making games and what his biggest influences are, then he can, he's done that already. He did that back in 2013. You know, remember those days? Oh, bless. Yeah, before the, the crazy times. Yeah, so... <laughs> Not, not, not to get too political, uh, but this next, I'm going to ask question number four again of you, John. Actually, okay. because it might have changed in the four years because a lot has happened. Oh, seven years, yeah. a lot has You'll happened. Have to tell me what question four is? Cause Indeed, I I'm going to, no, I'm going to ask it again. It's not fair for you to remember. It's absurd. Um, so the the question is this, and it may be a bit typical way to answer it. But what developer do you most admire in the industry, and why? Oh, do you mean current developer? Yeah, maybe. Or just like anyone you think, oh, they should, they're, they're awesome. They should carry on doing their thing because seven years is a long time. Yeah, that, that will have changed in seven years. Yeah. Like, so we're friends with a lot of developers and I don't want to hurt anyone's feelings by Indeed. not thinking of them straight away because there are a lot of people that I admire for a lot of different reasons. Um. But if I answer with my gut, the one that leapt to mind straight away for kind of who I admire the most and who I wish I could kind of be as good as and learn as much from is actually, I think it's Kit Fox Games at the moment. So they're based either in America or Canada. They're an indie studio. They're working on a few things. Um, they're working on Boyfriend Dungeon, which is a bizarre game where you do dungeon crawling and then go on dates with your swords. And I can't pretend to understand how that works. No, it's best not go. to think about it too much. It's a bit disgusting, yeah. like, isn't it, really? Where you, your weapons I, I, have a dungeon in them. Like, oh, God. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, I, I have confidence in them to pull it off. They they also did a, a, a sort of lo-fi game called Shrouded Isle that everybody liked a couple of years ago, which was about sacrificing people to a demonic god. And they're, they're doing a, an up-res of Dwarf Fortress at the moment. But they seem to be, like, running about five or six games at the same time. And they're a small team. Like, they're bigger than we are, but not much bigger. I think there may be eight, seven or eight people, maybe 12 at a push. A lot of that is probably helping like external companies with production. Mm. But they're just really focused. They're really solid. They they do things in a really sensible way. Their projects are, are, are well scoped. There's a kind of mixture of, of littler things and bigger things. And they just always seem really kind of on point with everything. And I just look at them and go, oh, I wish I was as good at running my studio with Joe as the Kit Fox Games people are at running their studio where they are they i just i'm kind of genuinely admire them for for what they what they do and what they keep on doing and how they keep on running and, and their kind of profile which is not that i necessarily admire them for their games because i think the games they make are not necessarily the kind of games that i really particularly like i have my own taste and that's fine um but i think as i get older i realize that nobody makes really the games that i really like anymore which is why i keep making games which was probably my answer to question one like seven years ago yeah um, yeah at a guess <laughs> but like but the one thing that i do spend a lot of time worrying about now more and more is how do we how do we keep on making games how do we make it a kind of space where we can be successful and do things and get good people to do good work and all the, the actual running a company stuff which seven years ago there were two of us so it wasn't really that big a deal and now well there's four of us so that's a lot more but it, it feels much more like a present thing i have to actually worry about 
God, that's a really mature and grown-up answer. Sorry. It's going to lead <laughs> oh, well. us into that. So thankfully, the next, the next question, which you might have almost hinted at, kind of like you can deflect from that because it's uh, basically what are you playing right now? Right now I am playing, I'm mostly, because Pen Dragon's been keeping me really busy for like mm. six months, as has like being on lockdown with small children. Um, so I'm finally catching up on some things that I missed. Yeah. So at the moment I'm playing uh, In Other Waters, which is a xenobiology game about being an AI in a suit underwater on an alien planet full of kind of fish and sea creatures and stuff and it's quite nicely written and it's got a beautiful it's sort of a ui game you kind of play on the computer interface it came out maybe at the start of this year okay i'm quite enjoying that i've been playing before i forget which is a game by a friend of mine about uh someone suffering from dementia which is just brilliant it's brilliant yeah. it's great um but i'm kind of, kind of trying to play more of the small scale like single shot little indie titles that have kind of interesting ideas in them and not get stuck into any 20 30 40 hour things at the moment i feel i feel a bit triple a'd out i think <laughs> i was on the bafta narrative panel last year and right. so I played lots of, like i had to play death stranding and i had to play control and i had to play jedi and i had to play like those really big chunky games yeah and yeah I, and now I got really tired of them, and now I want to play some little games. <laughs> no, I can definitely relate to that. Um, and uh, uh, I'm I'm going through all sorts of little wonderful little little experiences in games, including Pendragon. I'm not saying that because you're here. It generally is. It fits that place. Like uh, I, I'm gonna, we're gonna go places that you ought not really experience normally, kind of thing. Like oh, uh, and. Um, so yeah, I can understand where you're coming from and wanting to go into. I mean, you you sort of mentioned uh, developer earlier that, that you sort of cited as the box games and saying that uh, they made a game where it's all about you sacrificing people to a demonic god. Try to pitch that to a publisher, like yeah, no, <laughs> get out before I call yeah. the police. You know, it's just whereas um, you know, it's like in, I keep, I've got a. PS4 and it's sitting in the corner of my living room and I keep yeah. looking at it thinking is today the day I'm going to play Ghost of Tsushima? Yeah, yeah. And every day I think no, no it isn't. Not yet, <laughs> not yet. I, I still like, I, I kind of know what I'd be getting with that game. It is my sort of action game but I'm, I'm nah, I've still I played too many. I think you might need to for, you know, research purposes. Because it's yeah. got writing in it. Yeah, yeah, no, and I'm you know I'm pretty sure it's great as well. <laughs> although, although none of it actually happened, which is quite interesting. You know, it's like you, set in the yeah. real world but not so, yeah. you know, it doesn't really explain why the Mongols are doing what they're doing, etc. etc. It's all very interesting. Yeah. But uh yeah, there's that. <laughs> but I I've yet to delve into that. I usually reserve those sort of games when the 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 light, the, the the nights are quite long, kind of thing. If you get my meaning. Yeah. So yeah, that's yeah. Well, I mean, uh, one of my favourite ones for that period is the Horizon Zero Dawn. That was a game yeah. that I definitely spent most of my Christmas two years ago delving into. That was fun. It was. I really enjoyed Horizon, and then yeah. I, I went back to it maybe about a month ago. I thought oh, I'll just I'll because I didn't finish it. I thought I'll, I'll play a bit more of this. And mm. could I remember what any of the buttons did? No. No, no, not at all. No, it's, it's gone. The, that's the thing about gone. AAA games. Your muscle memory just goes. 
yeah. uh, I find. Whereas with other games like Hollow Knight and uh, and Spelunky, they got transferable skills right there. <laughs> like, well, yeah, I I get this. I'm all right with this. The amount of games I pick the pad up and there's no explanation about what buttons do. You just you know what to do. Off you go. <laughs> like, yeah, 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 you'll yeah. be fine. so it's quite interesting I find it fascinating that developers like it's bad bad enough they've got a menu come on I mean I'm waiting for the day when they just say look just compile it yourself Mm. (laughs) I'm not doing it for you (laughs) so that's the end of a very short first half which is fair enough because like I said John's been on granted many many years ago but he was on episode 2 so go dig out the archives it's on the, it's on this website off you go just have a listen it's really interesting about sorcery it's great this is a great game it still is even you know, after all this time it doesn't matter it's still great so but we're not here to talk about that we're going to delve deep into Pendragon So, John, before we can do that, you need to tell me what this is. And it's not a really strange, quirky board game that everyone might have heard of, or maybe not. But what is Pendragon? So, Pendragon is a narrative strategy game. Mm-hmm. What that means is it's a replayable tactics game, pretty much a board game, but where every piece on the board is a person and the story of the game the narrative is created move by move as you play the game so as you move pieces across the board they talk to each other based on the kinds of moves you make and the things that happen and what happens in that story is entirely generated every single time you play so it's always different it's always dependent on what happens on the board and what happens to your characters and uh where they go and what they find and what they discover and how they feel about each other and that's it so it's a it's a strategy game it's a massively replayable strategy game that's also a narrative game at the same time is that a coherent explanation i find it very difficult to pitch any of our games quickly because they're always kind of different from everything else and they're always built the wrong way 
so like it took us ages to work out how to pitch heaven's bolt like literally years pendragon we haven't even had years building it it's only been like about a year and a half so i'm still trying to work out how best to explain it to people quickly um it's like chess but if the pieces argued with each other and occasionally the pawns stormed off the board in a huff yeah what it's like for reasons and um, <laughs> we'll come to that. So yeah, Pendragon. Sorry, I've always thought my stuff London sort of like, but Pendragon. Stress the word dragon. Uh, Pendragon is um, Arthurian legends, of course. All of them are legends, which were actually written. Is it when were they actually written? Is it 18th century? Um, not sure when. So, they were. Uh, well, the the Arthurian legends go right the way back. To, I think the original source is the Welsh song cycle called the Mabinogion, which was written right. sometime in, which was sung by bards to each other, maybe about 300, 400 AD. And okay. Arthur kind of appears as like a side character in some of those stories, and yeah. he isn't really developed or fleshed out, but like he's definitely there. Yeah. And there was a chap called Geoffrey of Monmouth, who was maybe around 700, 800 AD, he was a bit later who wrote the first history of the British Isles and described how Arthur was this real king who did this stuff. Um, and then the most famous version was written in 1100 or so by a guy there called Thomas Mallory, who was yeah. in prison, who nicked a bunch of stuff from some European legends and mixed it in and created yeah. this kind of chivalric Arthur yeah. and added Lancelot and Guinevere and all the stuff that we think of as being Arthurian. Um yeah. And that has been told, like retold hundreds of times over the, the past thousand years. So yeah. I like to think that Pendragon is part of a long running canon. Um, and it's more of a sort of Batman year zero kind of thing. Yeah. Than, um, yeah than a, a kind of completely new <laughs> story. Earliest, earliest form of that kind of comic book writing nonsense. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and that's, exactly. that's fine. Uh, which uh, <laughs> speaking as someone who grew up with 2000 AD, can't really relate to because there's never been an origin story. Well, there is. It's just like the first one, and then they just kept going. <laughs> They've never yeah. done origin stories for those characters. Uh, that's just me. Um, but um, so, with that setting in mind, we're now going to speak um, objectively about Pendragon. And in Pendragon, um, one of the things that struck me that I was quite surprised at, because over decades, I mean decades of playing strategy games, uh, when a unit lands on another unit, there's normally some shenanigans. There's some number crunching. Years mm. of playing Civ will tell me that. I know a pikeman could actually potentially beat a tank. You never know. So, <laughs> and you just think, oh, it's going to be... No. When, in, in Pendragon, when you attack someone, when you engage in an attack, the attacker is always, always, pretty much, unless other abilities come into play but typically is successful mm. why right so when you play a tactics game no when you look at a screenshot of a tactics game there's a board and there's pieces and they're in some kind of position and maybe they have a sense of territory and where they can reach and where they can move to and then around the corner of the screen is this absolute firework of numbers Everyone has attack points, health points, defense points, strength points, mana points, skill points, all these other points all over the board, even in the games which are really streamlined. Like, I really loved the Banner Saga, which I felt was a really streamlined tactics game. Some people liked it, some people didn't, but like it didn't have too many numbers, but it still had plenty of numbers. And when I look at one of those games, I think, in my heart, I think, oh, I don't want to have to learn how all those numbers work. I just want to play a game. I just want to get on and do stuff. 
So one of our goals for Pendragon was how do you make a game which feels like a tactics game, which plays like a tactics game, which is tactically interesting, where you can read the board straight away. You can read the situation straight away. There's no adding up. There's no subtracting. There's no computation. There's no calculation. There's no, like, there's no sense that if you could be bothered to do the numbers, you could figure out whether what you're doing is sensible, but maybe you can't be bothered, so you just play randomly, where the information is all there. And when we started designing that, we thought, maybe we're not even going to be able to do this. Maybe that's a ludicrous thing to do. And then we remembered that there's this game called Chess, which is really quite famous, actually. And there's also this game called Drafts, or Americans call it Checkers, right, which is actually very similar to Pendragon in a lot of ways. In, and so if you talk about Drafts, right, it's got one kind of piece. No, it's got two kinds of piece. And they have one kind of move, and there are like three rules, and that's it. And drafts is a really good game. Like, you can be a highly skilled drafts player. And obviously with chess, you've got a few more rules and a few more subtleties going on, but you can be an incredibly, like, this is the the ultimate test of human ingenuity, is the ability to play chess well. And there are no numbers in it. And that's not because chess is a bad game. That's because chess is an extraordinarily good game that's incredibly strong. Okay, sometimes... It ends in a long, drawn-out stalemate that doesn't go anywhere. And if you have two good players, nobody wins. That's a bit of a flaw in a game design. Also, it goes on for hours and hours and hours. But that kind of idea of a of a game which is strategic but still elegant, like that was really appealing to us. So when we were designing Pendragon, uh, and the, the core design was done by Tom Kale, who's one of our developers, developer designers. Um, and he was playing around with ideas. And he started off with, Let's make turn-based Splatoon. So his whole idea was you have pieces, they paint the ground, and if they've painted it, they can run faster across it. And we started with that, and we played it for a while, and we found that you know the first player would always win. So we thought, well, what if we introduced another rule? Well, what would that rule be? And we tried all sorts of rules. We tried so many rules that it got really complicated sometimes so that explaining the game to people took about half an hour, and we thought, okay, that's no good. And then sometimes we took all the rules out, and it turned out that the first player would just walk across the board and win. And over about maybe a year and a half, maybe two years, we kind of played around with the core rule set until we ended up with this symmetric game that was played on a five by five grid that had two kinds of pieces, um, a piece that can move linearly like a like a rook in chess, except that it can only move one square, and a diagonal piece, which could only again move one square diagonally, but paints the squares around it. So diagonal pieces can paint territory for other pieces to move across far, so they can work together. And we played that, and we played the living daylights out of that game. We played hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of games of this game over our lunch breaks while we were working on Heaven's Vault. And at some point, we sat down and wrote an AI to see if we could. And we ended up writing this AI that played a nice little game of this 5 by 5 board game. And at that point, we thought, oh, that's good. And then we thought, oh, well, we're in cool. We make narrative games. We're never going to do anything with this. Never mind. We'll leave it. And we sort of shelved it and sort of forgot about it. And then we finished Heaven's Vault, which took years and years. And we were wondering what to do next. And somewhere along that line, this idea popped up of what if we took our five by five strategy, elegant board game and made every piece of character and made them talk about what they were doing while they were doing it? Could we do that? And we didn't think we could. And I still don't think we could, except we have. And we're releasing the game next week. So we definitely have done it. I still don't think it's possible and I still think it must be broken somewhere because like the characters talk to each other and they develop storylines and they have arguments, except that anyone can get killed at any time. 
during the conversation, literally at any moment, no character is ever safe, ever, I think. Um, but that seems to be working, which is kind of amazing. So I don't want to touch it anymore because I think I'm going to break it if I do. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, but... I mean, it's very important that, you know, again, focusing on the you, being influenced by chess, and I would argue you said there's no numbers. Actually, there is. It's all probabilities and all projections and patterns. And my criticism against chess, which doesn't apply to Pendragon, I believe, is that it's ultimately is two patterns smashing against each other, and whoever's got the better pattern will win. Uh, whoever's got the projected pattern is actually resistant to uh, uh, manipulation by another outside party, i.e. the other player, will win. Mm. Uh, That's Pendragon, interesting. I think yeah. you might have a higher level of analysis of chess then than I actually do. <laughs> <laughs> like, the way that I, I think what it comes from is like, you know when you play chess when you're a kid or when you're not very good at chess, which is me, yes. hello. Um, when you, you look at the board and you go, it would be really fun if I could get the queen over there. So I'm going to try and get the queen over there. Oh, it's gone wrong. And there's the bloodbath. And that's my idea of a fun game of chess. Like a bit of tension, but not too much taking it seriously. And you're, no. you are right. The really good chess players probably don't play that way. No, no it's, it, they recognise that this is there's two patterns, isn't it? That's why you have like the Sicilian defence and that kind of thing, because that's basically a code word or a phrase for an opening sort of yeah, um, right. and the, the, the triggering they... of, I'm going to do this pattern. Really? You're going to do that yeah. pattern? It's just, you know, I, I, I don't think so. So, um, yeah, it's yeah. it's it's a bit frustrating. So, well, I think um, one thing that we we wanted to do with Pendragon was to was it all part of that simplification, right? Because it's it's about making something that's simple without it actually ending up being simple. Yeah. And chess has got a lot of rules in it. If you teach chess to someone who's never played it before, they've got a lot of detail they have to learn before they can yes, even start people, playing. People don't realise that. That I mean, it's the the thing that always bothers me is what happens when you're reduced to a pair of pawns and a king <laughs> and it's just you shuffling around the board there is a rule for that it's 21 moves and if you're still checkmate then you've actually lost it's, it's all very yeah. but the mass basically the whole thing breaks down and that yeah, pentagon yeah. because you've done this you probably haven't done this consciously but what you've done is you set up so many different variables that the pattern's not freaking there i mean there's one particular incident where i won't go where or when or it happened but it really shook me and there was an incident involving one of the other the, the characters again i'm not going to reveal anything it's the first one of the earliest ones you do but even still i don't want to reveal any context it's wonderful there's also no such thing as an earliest one like your no, first no. game yeah. different from anyone else's <laughs> well, well I a thing happened four, yeah, a thing happened. four, yeah. four enemy units arrived not instantaneously, but one by one, each turn. Like, here's another one. Oh, look, here's another one. Oh, look, here's another one. And like, <laughs> what am I supposed to do with that? Well, that doesn't exist in chess. The chess yeah. board, you know where the variables are because it's right in front of you. You know, yeah. I must confess I've got this chess board in the middle of my dining room table. It's like a centerpiece saying this is my piece because I love mm. games and that's why it's mm. there. I'm not a big fan of chess because, like I said, I'm too analytical. I break it down and go... Yeah, it's just two patterns. There's reasons why I don't play, I'm going to say, take a drink of your World of Warcraft, because it's just basically two spreadsheets smashing against each other. Yeah, right. <laughs> so I think one of the things that we found was that we, yeah, we built this, this kind of five by five symmetric game that had kind of a very, it had a very crisp rule set. You know, in, in original ideas we had, we were going to make Pendragon like a two player game, like a multiplayer game where you just played against the other person on this board. 
Um, and the only reason you can't make it a physical game is just you have to paint the squares, which is a bit tedious, different colors as you move the pieces around. Um, but as we developed it into this narrative game, one of the things that came out of that was was that idea of variation. We couldn't have every level be a five by five grid. So we started to say, okay, well, how can we how can we vary these levels? Oh, maybe we could remove one square from the board. What does that do to it? Or we could make uh, a square, which we call them hummocks in the game now, but a, a square which when you stand on it, you can move in any direction from that square. So obviously it's got some strategic advantage. What happens if we add one of those? What happens if we add two of those? What happens if the level is almost entirely made of those? And what we found was that for every single one of those tiny elements we added, it produced, sometimes it completely destroyed the game and it wasn't playable at all. Sometimes it was interesting, but it was always unique. Like, And I think that's the remarkable thing, is that if you take Pendragon and you punch one hole in the board, in the middle of the board, it completely changes the patterns that play around that, that level. But if you punch that square one square to the left, it completely changes it in a totally different way because it's on a different diagonal. So the diagonals work in a different way. If you punch three squares, they're very, very different and so on and so on and so on and so on. So what we ended up with, we started off with this game that was kind of, um, that appeared elegant and on the inside, the rule sets were very elegant. Um, I think I made a prototype of it in JavaScript at one point in development and it took me like a day to code the rules of that game. And now what we have at the other side is we have that game with, a system for designing the board maps, a system for allocating how many enemies are going to spawn in this level, a system for pacing the enemies, a system for deciding which kind of special moves the enemies are going to be allowed to have, a system for deciding where are the resolve points on the board that you pick up that allow you to do special moves, and so on and so on and so on. There's about 15 systems generating the levels, and when they crash together, they always create something which is a little bit different and i think that's the thing that to me i stand back and i look at pendragon and i think i don't know how we did this but i'm really glad that it worked because um i genuinely do find i must have played thousands of levels that each level i never play a level which is the same as a level that i've played before ever whether it's very different or whether it's subtly different um there's always that sense that there's something new to look at and i think there, the, the elegance and the simplicity of the rule set, that thing about not having any numbers that we had right at the beginning, is so important because it means I can read the detail of the new, twisted, slightly different board without getting lost in, well, this square would make a difference, but because I've got 13 of that and you've got 27 of this, none of that matters. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's, that, it's, it's, it's yeah. like the, some of the, there's a board game called Eclipse that suffers from that quite badly. Whereas mm. it's like, oh, I can move my ships over there, but they've got all those resources. They can just build up those massive, what's the point of me doing anything? Because you do all this number crunching without understanding that maybe that person doesn't know that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I've done that so many times, like giving people way too much credit, like, but they've got all that resources. I hope they don't spend it. Oh, look, they're not. Excellent. Excellent. Right. So I'm going to have what we call a hollow victory. A hollow victory. <laughs> but at least it's a victory, sir. At least it's a victory now. All right. Well, as long as you have your pride. Um, <laughs> I, I I do explain what I did afterwards. Yeah. Maybe uh, explain. You know, learn from your mistakes. Learn from you know you know. Um, so second question I've got, and we haven't really addressed it, and we've sort of danced around it, pun okay. intended. Why does it? stances the stances yeah. uh in pen dragon it's a wonderful concept in that typically i say typically because it reasons 
typically if you go to orthogonal as opposed to diagonal on this yeah. the, this grid, this square grid, it's not hexagonal, everyone, it's square, so it's not, you know, it's yeah. not hard to buy or anything like that. Um, so it, how did that come about, that idea of having a stance where one where you could actually be an attacker, whereas others is purely movement? It's brilliant, but it really does stymie my, my ability to move around the board. Like, well, if I move there, I'm just going to die. Or, is, or that unit's going to get hurt, more than likely. Um, explain how did the stances idea come about? Yeah, I, I would struggle to actually remember what the exact sequence of events would be for creating the stances. I remember the original game was orthogonal pieces, right? They could move up and down, and they did attacking, and it was all about um, support units. So you'd, you'd take a unit forward, painting a road behind it, and then you'd have a piece behind it that could cover that. And there was a lot of a lot of calculation of, well... I take him and he takes me and I take him and he takes me and I take him and oh okay I win that encounter and every game of that early prototype would be a build up a build up a build up and then a bloodbath and then somebody would win and we played that for a while and it was okay but the thing I think that we found frustrating was that the beginning part of the game was very slow because to start with you'd have this piece in this corner and this piece in the other corner moving one step at a time towards each other and not engaging and taking and just because the board was wide it naturally took several turns to get anywhere near each other. And I think the idea for the diagonal movement came out of just wanting to speed the game up because what the diagonal piece can do is it can move two squares instead of one square. Okay, they're one one up and one across, but it, it gets across the board faster. So then I think we probably added diagonal pieces as a type. You probably spawned the piece and chose, am I orthogonal, am I diagonal? But of course, then diagonal pieces just run into the center and wallop each other like a cavalry charge or something. And that didn't that wasn't particularly interesting either. So I think we probably tried every single variation of what are these diagonal pieces for before the, the I think the killer idea was that the diagonal pieces can't attack. So they're very weak. They're very vulnerable, but they paint territory so you can. So the, the, one of the one of the core strategies of the game, which I remember we gave it some testers and we added a tutorial box to explain this strategy. And when it popped up, this tester said, oh, my God, you know, I've been playing this game for like days and I've never realized I could do this until the tutorial told me. And it, you move your orthogonal piece so that it's it's near another piece. And you're about to be captured by that piece. You can flip to diagonal to create a defense. Because if you flip from the linear stance to the diagonal stance, it paints the squares around you, including painting the square between you and the person who is about to attack you, which means mm. they can't charge and attack you anymore. Yep. So you can use this as a defensive maneuver. But at the same time, it paints squares that might le allow another piece to come up the side of you. And that idea of a diagonal piece that can influence the state of the board in quite a wide way. That I think that was the that was the point when we realized we had something really really interesting and for a long long time we weren't sure about the flipping so any diagonal stance can flip to a linear stance and can flip back again and that takes a whole turn so it's incredibly yes. dangerous expensive. to do it's, very, it's expensive yeah, exactly. i said it's expensive because i felt the actions were a resource right or wrong yeah here, I just no, felt, no no i think yeah I, I think that's exactly the right word it's expensive yeah. you're wasting a turn you're giving the opponent a turn if you do a flip so you only do it if you really really need to mm. or you've got a lot of like a big buffer that felt right, actually, because then yeah. and it works for the narrative as well. It feels like, you know, your your knight has gone into this kind of scouting support mode 
it's a big decision for them to change into an attack mode. It, it should be a weighted. You, you don't want people flipping backwards and forwards all the time. Um, but to be honest, most of this doesn't come from any kind of genius level insight, really. It just comes from we played the game a lot. We developed a really strong feel, especially Tom, who really did a lot of this early work, a feel for what we felt the game might be able to be. And then we kept trying rules to see if we could get it to be that way. <laughs> and a lot of, you know, we had a lot of rules that fit the dust. I remember there was a long time we had a version where if you captured a piece, you got another go um, in the way that you, you do in some games and um, some board games. And I really liked it. I really lobbied for it. And then at some point, Tom pointed out that the reason I liked it was because I was bad at games like this. And then when I got to take a piece, I could take lots of pieces and finally feel like I was doing well. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, yeah, you're right. Actually, <laughs> yeah. Like, so this really childish game where you just walk across the board. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Finally, I can get the queen where I want. See, done it. See, after all these years. <laughs> exactly. So um, my next question is definitely directed at you, John. Uh, this is something you know you can answer with authority and in detail the stories the player weaves through pendragon on each play feel like a fable just um, the the cadence the the pace everything the the word use the characters how everyone is acting in a very odd and extreme way and everything everything's either one or zero uh, there's not a lot of um, because that's how fables and stories are interesting. They make they, and my view is that they create characters that are just, quite frankly, some many regards comical and absurd. Whereas at the same time they are trying to invoke emotion or indeed a a a a a, a, a lesson to be learned, uh, some empathy that kind of thing. Um, but how do you find writing in this very very unique and very old style. I think it took me a while to get my head around it. Um, but broadly, I I love it because it's so grand. Like everybody gets to be gets to be who they really are all the time, and everything they say and everything they do can be so kind of full of conviction. Um, so I think my favorite parts of the game now are when you meet the Knights of Mordred and there's your Knights and there's the Mordred Knights and they just sort of trash talk at each other across the board. Constantly. Constantly. So like the Mordred Knights are always saying, you know, I bring a message from Sir Mordred. He tells you to bleed. Yes. (laughs) This kind of thing. And it's just sort of, um, and it's just, it's, I, I really, really, really enjoy writing that stuff because it's so out there and you don't get to write like that normally and it's so strong, but it isn't tonally wrong. And I think, is it comical absurd? Yeah, there's definitely a streak of comedy in the game. And it's not intentional. It's not intentional, but you're going to have to, oh. otherwise it becomes, or maybe it is. I'm sorry. Uh, I think, I, I, know, I think yeah. there are some places like, I, I don't there's know. There's pathos. There's definitely a lot of that. Yeah, I know. I, you know, I'm, yeah, like, I think, uh, there's a lot of comedy swearing. We lent into the comedy swearing, um, mm. which is always good. Uh, so, you know, the Mordred knight will say, so Mordred tells you to bleed like a dog. And then your knight will say, will reply, oh, bugger. Which I believe is pathos rather than pathos. Yeah. Yeah. But I think, 
I think the thing for me was I was really trying to find the tone for a while because I kind of the we read a lot of sources. I'm a bit of an Arthurian nerd anyway. Um, like I love the writing of T.H. White in The Once and Future King, which is quite magical and quite whimsical and quite, um, what's the word, melancholic. And I think that's definitely infused into the tone of the story, this sense that the, the game is a tragedy. It's all going to go wrong. Everyone knows yeah, it's going to go wrong. It's, it's down there with King Lear, I'm going to say it. That's what I felt. You know. <laughs> um, one of the um, most darkest tragedies of uh, Shakespearean. But I just felt that whether you were right or wrongly influenced by King Lear, but I just felt the same tone, if I hmm. may. <laughs> I, that feeds to me into, you know, the thematic layer of the game, which is, you know, very much one of the reasons I wanted to write it and I wanted to write it now was when everything has gone wrong, when everything is going wrong, when no one is listening and no one is acting sensibly, what what's the point in being a good person anymore? And I think that's that it, it, to me is at the heart of the Arthurian story. Like Arthur is a good, just, fair king in a kingdom that rips him apart for being a good king. What's the point of it? Well, the point of the point of King Arthur, if he was a real person, the thing that King Arthur did is it set up this idea of a noble and just ruler, which has been in the British psychology for thousands of years, we still have King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table. It's a sense of what government should be like. They had it when they set up Parliament in the 1600s. They had it in the 1800s when they were trying to run a good empire. They didn't manage that even slightly, but at least they felt like there was some kind of honour somewhere. Yeah, we have the, um, yeah this, the uh, disconnect between reality and what they're trying to achieve is quite phenomenal. Oh, yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> and I, I, you know, I'm definitely not defending them, but like when... Cognitive like dissonance, that's the phrase I was looking for. Yeah, when, when Tennyson was writing his Arthurian epic, which was right at the height of the empire, and that's what he's trying to do. He's trying to to get the empire to feel like King Arthur and to get King Arthur to feel like what was modern Britain then. And and we need it now, right? We need it now. Our politicians are not to get too political, but we have to get political because our politicians are like, they just voted to break international law. That's what yeah, happened yesterday. Yeah, well, it won't like, happen because... Yeah. No, it won't because of the laws. But why are yeah. they doing it? Why are they <laughs> wasting their time with this law that won't happen? It won't and it's happen, just yeah. this idea that yeah. the government no longer wants to rule the country. Government just wants to stir and stir and stir yeah. and agitate. And what, what do, you know, in this context, why should any of us be good people? Why should any of us respect the lockdown rules when they can't be bothered to? Why should any of us not just go yeah. and rob like um, the rich people now? Yeah. What's the point of being a good person? And I think it's because what we do now reflects we might not be able to save the world right now. But no. what we do now will be remembered in 50 years time and 100 years time and 200 years time. And it might change the way that people then think about what they should be doing. Yeah. And that to me is the point of the Arthurian myth. And that to me is the point of the kind of the tragic and thematic layer of Pendragon. Indeed. However, yes. how, sorry, that's all very deep. However, you that's can't fine. you can't write that directly onto a game which is mostly about killing large wolves and like crash <laughs> and, bears. And, and bears and bears yeah stupid and bears. bears absolutely yeah. um <laughs> you you just can't you can't have them kind of soliloquize um as they they walk across the battlefield so i think one of the challenges for me was that was what i want that's what i had in my heart and that's what i wanted the game to be to be thematically about but on a beat mm. by beat level on a move by move level it needs to be more like um, the Mabinogion, the old kind of legends, which are absolutely bonkers. And like knights just 
they ride out, they fight, they fall, they die, they get up again, they sleep with each other's wives, they, they you know, bury yeah. people under... Stone. I mean, they're not as bonkers as the Celtic ones, they're even worse, but... <laughs> 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 they go into very strange places, which, uh, you know, yeah. But um, they've probably influenced each other anyway, so... I read a chunk of uh, Le Mort d'Arfeu, which is the 1100s one, when I was... I've read it bits of it before, but I read a bit as research for this just to try and get the tone. Um, there's a story in the middle where Sir Gawain, who is a good man, right? He is a good knight. This is very clear. He's chivalric. This is very true, yes. He yep. did find the grail, I believe, didn't he? Uh, uh, no, that was Galahad. Depends story. Galahad, sorry. No. So, you know, he's not Galahad, but he's, he's no. okay. Gawain is okay. Yeah. And he goes to this castle where there is a lord, and the lord is having trouble with his wife. I think I think it's something like his wife is refusing to sleep with him. And Gawain says, it's all right, I'll fix it by dressing up in your armor and battling this other knight and making her really impressed with you. Gawain then proceeds to dress up in armor, kill this other knight, goes to bed, wakes up, finds the Lord's wife in his bedchamber, sleeps with her, wakes up to find the Lord that he was supposed to be helping outside wanting a fight with him, kills that Lord. And then rides away into the sunset going, I have done well. <laughs> and it, it's something like that. It makes absolutely no sense from a like, storytelling perspective. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know. I can't rationalize it. But I, no. I love the, I love the, the you know, it, it is what it is. I love the gung-ho <laughs> solidity of it. It's just like there's a thing that happens and then this is the next thing that happens. And who knows, it may even make sense if you analyze it with some understanding of the historical context, which I, which I don't have. No. Uh, just projecting yeah. but i do have one <laughs> last question because we could clearly go on and you and i both have the enthusiasm for the written word and of course the source material so we could be here for hours but we're not here to talk solely about Arthurian legends and their origins as fascinating as that is we are here to talk about bidger game which is pen dragon and yeah. one last question i have regarding the special abilities we haven't really touched on these Yes. But they are unlocked in a lot of different ways. Mm. Uh, and one of the things I just felt, this was the mechanism for unlocking these abilities a way to encourage the player to engage with the narrative as well as the tactical experience that's being delivered by a pen dragon? Yeah, I think it, it definitely is. Um, yeah. So the, the core idea is that every character has a story. They have a core story, which is what they believe about themselves. And when dramatic or exciting or important things happen to them, they'll change their core story. So Guinevere might start off with the story of, you know, I still love Arthur and I want to save him. And then that might change to the story of, oh, my God, everyone's going to die um, if she has a particularly bad battle or or whatever. And every time your story changes, um, you get a special remove a special move that you have is taken away and you're given another one, which is sort of roughly supposed to be of equal value or slightly better slightly stronger it doesn't always play out that way um but that's definitely an attempt to get the narrative to feed back into the tactical situation in different ways but i think where it really came from was partly having special moves makes the game more interesting to play because you get different combinations and sort of effects and and different things to think about which we like just from a gameplay point of view but really i was thinking of um do you remember in the lord of the rings there's that bit where the king of the Nazguls, the big shadow guys, says, you know, no man can kill me. And uh, in the armor, the, the sword stabs down and the woman rips off her helmet and she says, I am no man. And I love that idea of, of killing someone with a 
with it's like James Bond killing someone with a quippy one-liner. Like you've got your one thing that you shout. So that was actually, I think, for me, where the special move thing came from was the idea that every knight would have a little speech that they could deliver on the board, which was like, "We strike for Arthur," or it was like, "I cannot forgive myself for what I've done," <laughs> as they swipe someone's head off or yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, you know, yeah, jump across a barrel and land on someone else's head. And yeah. it was that kind of. Um, uh, for England and King George, that, uh, for England and yeah, George thing. Yeah, um, for the Empire. They never said that, did they? No. It's interesting. <laughs> no. You never hear anyone from yeah, like like you know, they they never do that, do they? They do for the the Queen that kind of stuff, but they never say yeah. for the Empire. I can't think why. Because yeah. <laughs> even though it was one, they got no. It's it's not. It's a it's a thing. It's a yeah. Yeah. <laughs> for, for the Queen. <laughs> <laughs> that's uh, it yeah referring to victoria of course not to... yeah but yeah. uh yeah, and it yeah. Is exactly that and that kind of that was just such a fun that was quite an early idea actually and yeah. that we, we we thought that was just such a fun idea having these kind of knights with one idea in their head that gave them incredible power um that we really wanted being to driven out. is a thing you and i both suffer from it but being <laughs> driven is a thing and that's three fine and episodes later, yeah we, yeah we three and three episodes later am i not driven um but i don't think i deserve a cape quite yet but then again you know tapes are still bad hat. right yeah start with a hat i think yeah little little bowler hat a little tiny one that's to decide um so uh well john it's been Fantastic having you on, Pendragon, uh, developed and published by Inkle. Is that right? Yep, that's right. Uh, it's out now, as the time of uh, the show's been released, uh, on Windows PC. Is that right? Yeah, and also on Mac. Ah, oh, well, yes, yes. You can uh, I should play on my uh, PC because I've just recently upgraded, so I'm just playing everything on it now. But I do have a Mac laptop as well, which it works quite well with. And it's uh, on Steam and also on GOG, depending on mm. which you prefer. Yeah. Well, John, it's been wonderful having you on again. Thank you. It's been very nice to be back. <laughs> let's not make it seven years next time. Uh, let's try and try and be a bit better. But, uh, of course, you're welcome to come back on again uh, with whatever next project you have on hand, whatever that may be. Uh, but, yeah, thanks so much for being on. You've been a great guest. My absolute pleasure. Thanks for talking to me. You have been listening to the Sausage Factory podcast part of the Cane and Rinse Collective. Support us for just two US dollars per month at patreon.com forward slash Cane and Rinse for early, extended and exclusive podcasts. Find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Twitch, YouTube and at our website, caneandrinse.com.